Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 2 Samuel chapter 11, and stay standing for the reading of God's Word. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. That David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the son of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she, had, she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life, and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank with him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to the hand of Uriah, He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. And Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, 
Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. And she bore him a son, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage, Father, we ask that you would illumine our hearts and minds, that you would teach us by your Spirit, and that we would be humble and receive your teaching. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So there's much in this passage. We won't go through the whole thing. In fact, we're going to go through the first First five verses, essentially, in this passage and give our attention to it. A little bit of review as we normally do as we come to these passages in Second Samuel. First, David's kingdom is at the height of its power. This is the, he's been ruling for maybe half of his reign, maybe a little over a half of his, his reign of 40 years. And um, there's unity, there's a general peace about the kingdom. Um, still, they're in the midst of this battle with the sons of Ammon that, they, that we looked at last time. That carries through till the end of chapter 12 when that, um, when that uh, war is over. The temptation for David would now be complacency. right? When things are calm, when things are going well, when things seem to have come together and the kingdom's in good order, then complacency would uh, come along and tempt him. Now, remember that God had made promises to David. Do we remember the promises that God has made to David at this point? God had covenanted with David and given him essentially three promises. And these are the promises that David heard from the very mouth of the Lord. One, David's dynasty would continue. Right, His reign will continue. His... His kingdom will continue. Two, his son would build a temple. Not he himself as he desired, but his son would build a temple. And then three, the seed of David would reign forever. So those are the promises that God in covenant with David um, made. And and so David is, is resting in those promises now in his kingdom. And all is well. And... And yet, when complacency comes, when we are not ready to face the temptations that so, and the sins that so easily entangle us, um, then we fall into sin from those temptations. And that's what we see here of the man after God's own heart, the man uh, that was raised up by God to rebuke the house of Saul 
And so David has commanded his, his commander of the armies to go out and defeat the sons of Ammon. And Joab is engaged in that battle with the sons of Ammon. It's, this, is, this is the Ammonite war, like I said, that would go through the end of 12. And notice in verse 1 that it says, Then it happened in the spring at time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. And so it's, it's not necessarily... You often hear that David should have been out on the battlefield. Well, how often does the commander-in-chief go out on the battlefield? Not very often, right? He sends the commander of his armies to go out on the battle. Um, the the commander-in-chief stays behind. But you would expect that the commander-in-chief would be engaged. That's how he would be going out to battle. And that's how he would, um, he would be uh, engaged at this moment. But it's not necessarily that he would be physically on the field of battle. He should still have been engaged. Um, Note Uriah and others who went off the field. You know, when Uriah later comes off the field, does he disengage from the battle? No, he doesn't even disengage from the battle. He stays in the battle and won't even go visit his wife, won't, um, won't indulge himself in any of the luxuries of life, but stays encamped in front of the king's palace with the armies, right? And so he doesn't even disengage um, when off the field. And yet David did. David disengaged from the conflict that was around him. So then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem and then we see this scene. Right now, when evening came, David arose from his bed. Now, we can't make too much of that. I think it was common during this, uh, this age to sleep in the afternoons and arise at evening. And so, it would be easy for us to make that application that he was just lazing around the house and he slept all the way like a teenager to you know, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. But um, I, think, I think during the heat of the day, they would sleep and withdraw from, um, withdraw. And so this is not abnormal for David to be arising from his bed at evening. But he walks around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he sees a woman bathing. And we are told that the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Right? So immediately her appearance is what is discussed at this point. It's not that David sees a woman bathing on the roof. It's that he notices how beautiful that woman who is bathing on the roof is. Right? And so we see that in this. Um, what should... David have done? What should David, what could David have done at this point? Well, Calvin in his commentary says he should have immediately rebuked himself and prayed to God. Just immediately said no to his eyes and prayed to God and got down on his knees and prayed that God would rescue him from temptation. Now you contrast this with Joseph. Joseph in Genesis 39, 
um, and Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. Right? We, we read a different reaction to, toward temptation there. So, um, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Again, those looks that Scripture brings out here. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. Right? There's, the, there's temptation. There's sexual temptation right before him as it was with David. But he refused and he said to his master's wife, behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house and he has put me put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he, was, he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. So day after day, this woman was coming to him and tempting him. And he would not listen. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household were there inside. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. And when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called the men of the household and then she uses that garment to indict um, Joseph for things that he had not done. But look at what Joseph does there. Immediately when the temptation comes on, he reminds himself that this woman is another man's wife. And he says it to her, right? You're my master's wife, and how could I do this? And what does he say finally? This would be what? Sin against God. This would be sin against God. And so here's Joseph showing... David, King David, what King David should have done. It was a great, I should not do this great evil. He's reminding himself of the sinfulness of sin. And he should not sin against God. And so Joseph refused. Joseph reminded himself of the sinfulness of the actions. And then Joseph fled. He just got out of dodge. Right? What of David? What of David back in 2 Samuel 11? So David sent and inquired about the woman. David sent and inquired about the woman. He's inquisitive. Right? He's, he, you know, who is this woman? What's, what's going on here? Um, he pursued. He did not refuse. He did not flee. He did not define the boundaries of his sin. He did not remind himself of the great evil of adultery. He is not fighting his temptations. He sends, he goes after his temptations. He goes to the next step. And, and, you know, usually when temptation comes on us, we think there are a few steps we can take that are innocent. You know, just inquisitiveness. We sort of flirt with our temptations. And, and here he is just inquiring after her. And probably in his mind he's saying, like, you know, I'm the king. I probably need to know who my subjects are. But the thing is, is he probably knew her. He probably was quite familiar with Bathsheba. Um, Bathsheba was a daughter of Eliam, one of David's 30. 
um, and the son of Ahitophel, one of David's chief advisors. Okay? And um, Ahitophel was from Judah, and, this, and, and so Bathsheba was from Judah, and David was of the tribe of Judah. So they're all of the same tribe. And, this, and Bathsheba was probably a generation younger than, than David himself. And so doubtless she was probably known to David. And so when he goes to inquire of her, he knows exactly how beautiful she is. He knows exactly how old she is. He knows exactly who she's connected to. And yet he goes and inquires. Inquisitiveness in the face of temptation is dangerous. And indicates a soul unprepared or unsobered, uh, but headed for the slaughter. Right? Not like Joseph, who fled, who reminded, who prayed, who was prepared. David is being inquisitive when he should be denouncing himself. And and so there's that, right? David sent and inquired about the woman, and so his messengers, and remember these messengers would have been messengers that he would have had to communicate with the men of the army. He's using them to inquire about the women on the roof that he's gazed at. Right? He's using those messengers around him to, um, to satisfy his inquisitive lusts and rather than communicating with the men who would be dying to protect his kingdom. And then it says this, So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Right, so that they come back and they're like, you know who this is. This is Bathsheba. Is this not Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Two connections that David should say, huh, yeah, that's the wife of Uriah. He's out fighting for me and the, the, the daughter of Eliam. And yet that doesn't stop David. David's inquisitiveness goes on. And David sent messengers, it says, those same messengers go back and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Right, so David commits adultery with Bathsheba. It says he took her, right? Just those, just a, such a generic verb for such a terrible, terrible thing. Notice at the end of it that it says she stayed until she was clean. Leviticus 15.18 says if a man lies with a woman so that there is a seminal emission that um, they both shall bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Right. So here's Bathsheba who's been taken being concerned about fulfilling the purity laws um, of, of that time. And so um, there she is. They're both unclean until evening, but um, they had to bathe in water. 
And then we find out that Bathsheba is with child. Leviticus 20.10 says this. Here's what the law... Here's, we, we forget about this. Does the law apply to the king? Does the law of God apply to the king? Is the king above the law? I mean, we have to remind ourselves of this because many of those who rule over us seem to be above the law. They have a special tier of laws that, that uh, only apply to us and not to them. But um, the law of God applies to the king. The king was supposed to be very familiar with the law and he was also supposed to be an example of keeping the law and he was supposed to enforce the law. Right? But Leviticus 20.10 says, If there is a man who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And this is his friend's wife. I mean, very literally there. This is his friend's wife. If there is a man who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. And so these rules and these laws apply to David as well and to Bathsheba. Does Bathsheba now, let's investigate this for a moment, does Bathsheba bear some responsibility? We don't have a tendency to think of this because we've stripped women of all moral culpability in our day and age. Right? Women don't sin in our eyes, certainly in a feminist age's eyes. The Me Too movement. Think of the Me Too movement for just a moment here. Let me make this application and then you can throw stones at me later. Um, today we completely exonerate women, we remove their moral agency, and even the woman who, think of this, even the woman who is hoping to make it in Hollywood, who ends up in the room of Harvey Weinstein, is thought to be a victim. But to have no moral agency applied to her, how did she get up in that room? How much of a temptation was it for her to get a starring role in a movie that she would be willing to give up her body for? Right? We think that there's no moral agency with the women involved in the Me Too movement, and that's what the power of the Me Too movement is in, fe- in a feminist environment. But what of Bathsheba? I mean, I want to ask this question. What of Bathsheba? Could, should she have resisted the king and his messengers? Could she have? I mean, this, this is the king. This is King David. Could she have resisted him? Well, what did Joseph do? Joseph was just a slave in the household of Potiphar. And the, the, the master of the house's wife is tempting him and tempting him, and he resists, and what happens to him? He gets thrown in prison. Right? He suffers the consequences of having resisted power. But he's righteous for it. Right? Bathsheba should have said no to the king. She should have told those messengers no. She should have done David the favor of cutting off his lusts and said no. 
I am the wife of Uriah. I am the wife of Uriah. Did not she have the same obligations as Joseph, which we laud Joseph for before Potiphar's, Potiphar's wife? Um, does you shall not commit adultery inform her response to David messengers, to David himself? Well, perhaps this was rape, right? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her, right? And so maybe it was that. Maybe David is, David's sin is not simply adultery, but it's violence. It's murder, in a sense, right? He took her, he captured her. The Hebrew means he seized her, he captured her, Um. You know, am I being callous to even ask this question? Or, and, and I'm not trying to exonerate David here. David's sin is evil. David's sin is wicked. But I'm wondering at this point whether it would be wise for us to think about Bathsheba's lack of resistance. Lack of no. Lack of following in the footsteps of the example of Joseph who came before him. She is conscientious about her uncleanness, but what about her act of adultery? Calvin says this. I I was looking through old dead reformers to um, make my points for me because uh, some people are looking at me very strangely right now. Like, (laughs) okay. Um, Like I've gone too far. Well, um, Calvin says this. She should have exercised discretion so as not to be seen. When she was bathing. That was her first error. She should have just used her discretion. She, she was bathing. She's a beautiful woman. She's bathing out in the open where she can be seen by the king. She should have had some discretion. And so she certainly has sin in this. I agree with him that she should have exercised that discretion. Um, but beyond that, we might be willing to concede that, but beyond that, we wonder about whether Bathsheba was, we don't even conceive whether Bathsheba may have been culpable in this situation. Now we go on, we read at the end of the passage, now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Undoubtedly, she had a love for her husband. And when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so David, don't forget this either, David is multiplying wives up to this point. He has has multiple wives, and he has multiple concubines, and that's evil. He was to have one wife, and yet he had been accumulating wives, and now here's another wife. And then we see Bathsheba being very jealous for the glory of her son coming up with Solomon and his, his, she trying to ensure that Solomon is the one who follows David on the, on the throne. But, but I, I don't know if we can resolve these things. But I at least want to ask the question about Bathsheba. Is she somehow culpable? But... but Here's the main point. Men sin and women sin. We live in a culture that just tries to diminish the moral agency of women. 
And we have to be careful to remember, no, it's not toxic masculinity. It's the sinfulness of mankind. Right? It's men and women who sin against other in greatly terrible ways. And there is not a balance and, and uh, not an imbalance here between man and woman. Uh, men and women sin at the same disgusting rate as one another. And there, would, there may have been sin here in Bathsheba's unwillingness to deny the king what he wanted. So, some applications. These are the first five verses. Oh yeah, verse 5. The woman conceived and she sent and told David. Said, I am with child. I am pregnant. And that leads to what we'll go into next time, but that leads into David's scheming. right? He's got to figure out how this child that is, has been knit together in the womb of Bathsheba can be passed off as some other man's child. Right? And that's why he gets Uriah drunk. That's why he calls him back from the battlefield thinking that he'll, um, he'll spend time with his wife. But he's a righteous man and he does not do that. So David's first error, here are some applications that I get from this. You may have others. David's first error, not being about his work. He's, just not, he's not engaged. Disengaged from work. Disengage yourself from work, from a calling, from the, the things that God has given you to accomplish, and guess what? You will fall into sin, right? Idleness, complacency, those are terrible situations to be in. So he didn't carry out his duty, he didn't put his hand to the task, but instead was idle and so he should have been engaged with his people, engaged with Joab, engaged with his army, engaged with his calling to be king. And so you too should be engaged with your calling to serve Jesus Christ, to serve the king, right? And not be idle. That's why vacations are a wasteland for me, for sin. I become idle, I disengage from my work, I come off the battlefield, and I'm just like, there's no guards. I need work to help me fight my temptations. I need work. And so, that's the first application. Second, do you have an inner dialogue? Do you have an inner dialogue in your Christian walk? Are you constantly talking to yourself? Not out loud, that's weird. I mean inner dialogue, right? Right? An inner dialogue. Do you constantly have a conversation going on with the Lord? Right? An inner dialogue uh, about what you should do. Um, we, should, we should always be about self-rebuke, right? No, Dion, don't look that way. Or you can't do that. Or get busy. There should constantly be this inner dialogue going on. Um, and I think that's very important to develop. I think that's a part of praying continually, right? Because eventually that rebuke turns into prayer for God's help, right? So you, you're, you're speaking, you're, you're 
um, you're thinking, you're aware, right? If you have this dialogue going on, I mean within reason, if you have this dialogue going on, you're, you're aware of your surroundings, you're aware of what's going on, and you're, you're, you always have a rebuke for yourself ready. We should be there. We should live that way. We should have, um, uh, have that dialogue going on. Martin Lloyd-Jones always used to say you have to, you, you have to talk to yourself, you have to preach the gospel to yourself constantly, like in an inner dialogue going on in your head. Preach the gospel. You know, the promises of God, repeat them in your head, right? Rebukes that you know from Scripture, repeat them in your head. Constantly have this going on. David shut that down. Joseph didn't. David shut it down, and look what it led to. Kindle the grace of God. Here's another, um, another application. Kindle the grace of God, not evil desires. Stoke your, the fuels for the grace of God. Don't stoke them for evil. Fourth, um, what about David's messengers? What should David's messengers have done? Do you think they might have had an inkling about what David was doing, sending them to inquire about who this woman was, who he saw bathing on the rooftop and who was very beautiful and who was known to him? David's messengers should have resisted him if they had a sense of what was going on. Um, do you have people surrounding you that encourage you in your sin or warn you against it? What kind of friends do you have? Do you have friends that pull you toward evil or head it off who are willing to sabotage your entire friendship to make you walk in godliness? That's the sort of friend you want to have. These messengers were complicit in David's sin by not telling him to stop. They didn't have the courage to resist power, to resist the king. They should have had that courage. They may have been thrown in prison. They may have suffered the consequences that Joseph suffered for his righteousness, but they would have a clear conscience And then, um, remember this. All of us ultimately have one king that we serve, and God is the ultimate king. Um, we must obey God, not man. Right? I'm always quick to remind all of us to submit to legitimate authority. We should always be ready to submit to legitimate authority. All authority that has been put in place has been put in place by God and for a purpose. And so if it's legitimate authority, if it's lawful requests, we should submit to it. But there is a time to obey God rather than a man. Right? A time to resist authority when, they, when that authority is attempting to cause you to sin against God. There are several situations in this where the, the, the players in this history should have said, I have to obey God rather than man. And they should have put their sin to a halt. And what a blessing that would have been to King David, right? King David would not have had to go through what, what comes in covering up his sin and digging deeper in his rebellion against God. He would not have murdered Uriah. 
and he would not have committed adultery with the man who was serving him. And then the final, the final application I have on this, these five verses, isn't it incredible how suddenly the best Christians can fall? The, the man after God's own heart sees a woman bathing and bam, he's caught up in a path that leads him to adultery, manipulation, perhaps even rape, and murder. The man after God's own heart, a righteous man, a man who had shown such wonderful forbearance to Saul. Right? He'd been so kind, he'd been so gentle to Saul. He had multiple times where we, he could have killed Saul and everybody would have praised him for it and he didn't because he didn't want to lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed. And here he puts to death Uriah, whom he had sinned against. It's so callous. It's so the opposite of what we've seen of David in God's blessings up to this point. So how suddenly the best Christians can fall. Is that an excuse for sin? Right? Well, if the best Christians can fall, you know, what, what, what can I do? No, it's not an excuse for sin. Is it meant, you know, by saying how suddenly the best Christians can fall, is it meant to erase all consequences of our sin? You know, well, if, you know, if David could fall, then, then what hope is there for me, you know? So I may as well just go my own way. No. Um, are there sins that will disqualify us from, from uh, office, from employment, etc.? Yes, there are consequences to our sins that linger past forgiveness of those sins. David was forgiven these sins, but the consequences lasted through his entire lifetime. And they were very painful because they involved his own family rising up in rebellion against him. Nonetheless, it has to be said that that David, Peter, the Apostle Peter, even you can fall into terrible sins. And the less prepared you are every day, the more likely it is that you may fall into one of those terrible sins. A moment of lust that breaks apart your family and leads you to cover the pain of it with continuous drunkenness. Right? Remember this, there is forgiveness with the Lord even as there are lingering consequences and disciplines for our sin from the Lord. There is forgiveness with the Lord. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter. Right? Like, like chains. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Right? That's, that is... We have to know ourselves. We have to know how wandering and how powerful temptations are against us. But we also have to remember that God has put His Spirit within us and He has prepared us with everything that we need to live a godly life. The Spirit and power. And so, be prepared. Be ready. Avail yourselves of the way of escape that God always provides when temptation comes, right? Avail yourselves of that and 
and pray immediately. When temptations come along, don't wait to face them. Don't wait to face them. Face them head on. Let's pray. Our Father, it does grieve us to read about David's sin, and yet, Father, we know from our own experience what terrible sins we've committed even after we've known you and served you. Father, we ask that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus, that we would be prepared to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, that we would put to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit. Father, I pray that we would repent of thinking that the flesh and the evil one are stronger than you. And that we would come to you for refreshment, come to you for defense, come to you for help when we are tempted. And Lord, when we fight off temptation by the power of Your Word and through prayer, Lord, I pray that You would give us joy in our hearts. That we would rejoice. That we would crave the joy of holiness. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.